When you think about professional athletes, your first thought likely turns to the glitz, glamour, and high salaries of our largest sports leagues. All that fame and fortune begins with the athletes' talents, for sure, but agents have blazed the way for athletes to truly build generational wealth. Now when you think of agents, a different name likely pops up, Lee Steinberg. Steinberg is a super agent who's helped build the most famous athletes into international brands and established the role of the sports agent as a cornerstone of sports culture. But it wasn't always this way. When Steinberg was fresh out of school, there really weren't any agents. Now, over the course of four decades, everything has changed, and I sat down with Lee Steinberg to find out exactly how that all came to be. Only on Salary Capped. You're listening to Salary Capped, a podcast exploring the business side of sports. Lee Steinberg, legendary sports agent. Thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. So, Lee, take us back. What made you want to become an agent in the first place? Where did that all start? Well, there really was no career to aspire to because there wasn't an organized field of sports agentry. So when I started, teams could hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. And so it was a rudimentary field compared to uh, the current day. So I was going to law school at, at Berkeley in the late 60s, and I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dormitory, and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students was Steve Bartkowski, the quarterback, who ended up the very first player picked in the first round of the NFL draft. And he asked me to represent him. This was 1975. So there I am, brimming with legal experience, uh, waiting to take a couple other jobs, and he's the first pick in the first round. We get the largest rookie contract in NFL history and fly into Atlanta, and there are Klieg lights at the airport and a huge crowd pressed up against the police line. And first thing we heard was, we interrupt the late news to bring you a special news bulletin. <laughs> Steve Bartkowski and Lee Steinberg have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live. So I was really stunned by the idol worship and veneration that athletes were held in across the country. And, and that started uh, 46 years of representing athletes. And now, Eight number one overall draft picks in the NFL draft, 11 Hall of Famers later. Uh, you, you have such an influence over players at a time, at a really formational time for them as they leave college and head to the pros. How do you view your role in that transition for them? Because at that time, you know, that a lot of big decisions are being made and, and that sort of thing for them. How, how do you view your role in, in those cases? So the key is listening. If you learn how to draw out another human being and get them to list their priorities and values and understand how they feel about short-term and long-term economics and family and geographical location and, and being a starter. If you carefully listen, if you can put your heart and mind into the heart and mind of another human being and see the world the way they see it. So holistically, I have to understand and know who that athlete is and then prepare a plan which will take them through scouting to a draft, but in the long term, we ask each one of them to be role models and to retrace their roots back to the high school uh, community. 
set up a scholarship fund, Boys and Girls Club, the collegiate community where Troy Aikman endowed a full scholarship at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And then at the Pro City, a charitable foundation with the leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders that will execute a program. So Warwick Dunn, the running back, just put the 175th single mother and her family into the first home they'll ever own by making it a down payment and um, outfitting it. And so it's athletes changing lives or messaging like the heavyweight boxer Lennox Lewis saying, real men don't hit women. Mm -hmm. And that can do more to trigger behavioral change in rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could. And you're heavily involved in philanthropic efforts off the field as well. Can you tell us about some of the things that, that you do in that area? And also, you know, you've gone a good way into explaining how you also instill that in the athletes that you work with. Well, one of the things I did was uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and I addressed the issue of landmines. And we created a program called Adopt a Minefield where you could go to Cambodia or Angola or Mozambique and demine uh, the mines that are so debilitating for people. Um, I was worried about the advent of uh, white supremacists and hate groups and so created a training program where in the 30 largest cities across the country, we trained young professionals how to spot hate groups, go into situations and intervene in a crisis and go into school systems that do things like uh, uh, promote ethnic tolerance. Um, or the Sporting Green Alliance uh, to try to work with climate change, where we took sustainable technology and wind, solar, recycling, resurfacing, and water to state arena and practice fields to drop carbon emissions and energy costs and to transform those venues into educational platforms so the millions of fans that go can see a waterless urinal or a solar panel and think about how to integrate those concepts in their own homes and businesses. So you put sports in the forefront mm -hmm. of rolling back climate change uh, or an issue like concussion yeah. uh, where I had a crisis of conscience back in the 80s because I kept having quarterbacks hit in the head and we'd go to doctors and they couldn't tell us how many were too many and what the magic number was. So I've held 16 conferences since then to try to uh, bring awareness prevention and cure into that area. Are you concerned at all about the future of football given the, the concussion issue? And, and, and I guess the, the more that we've learned about the impact of playing the game on, on its players. Well, three or more concussions occasions an exponentially higher rate of Alzheimer's, premature senility, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And it's not just a problem in football, it's all mm -hmm. contact sports and people fall off bicycles and they fall off horses. So the problem with athletes is denial because they accept a subset of norms from when they're young. Real men don't stay out of the lineup. Real men play under all circumstances. Mm -hmm. So um, the real key is, is, is there a rules change to less blocking with the tackling. 
uh, and tackling with the head. Right. Is there uh, a nutraceutical or pharmaceutical that can be prophylactically preventive? Can we do a better helmet? Can hyperbaric oxygen or some form of brain stimulation uh, heal the brain? And it is the existential threat to football because of 50% in the moms in this country understood the real danger of concussion and they tell their teenage boys, you can play any sport in high school and we'll support you, but not tackle football. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't kill football, but <clears throat> it would gradually destabilize the base to the point where if you don't play something live or see it live, it's hard to sustain the interest. And it's not tomorrow or the next day, but it's a long-term threat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the other big changes we're, we're seeing in the, the football landscape these days is the push for compensation for college athletes, right? I, w I wondered your opinion about that, whether it's athletes uh, that are collegiate athletes receiving um, payment for their image, their likeness, things along those lines. How does that change maybe the landscape of, uh, of the way that we see sports business these well, days? Well, I think it makes it better because <clears throat> it gives more incentive for players to stay on campuses instead of one and done. Currently, we have a two-tiered system. On one level, we have uh, athletes who come from uh, affluence or wealth. They do fine with scholarships. Athletes who don't, very often may send money home and they're living at a lower standard of living than their non-athletic peers. And they can't work during the school year to supplement them. So we just had a Supreme Court decision that said that athletes could get educational enhancements on college campuses. And there's new legislation. It started in California with SB 206. And now the NCAA has adopted guidelines so that high school player comes into college and from the very beginning he can have an agent, he can have a marketing agent, a booking agent uh, to, to build his website, to build his brand, to, to stimulate uh, endorsements and uh, it'll be a major change. And that idea of building a personal brand is really something that, that's come along in a big way over the last 30 years or so. And you, you and I, before the cameras started rolling, we're talking about the difference between representing a Pat Mahomes and a, and a Troy Aikman. A lot of that is social media and that ability to build your own brand these days. There wasn't even an internet <laughs> at, the, at the point where uh, Troy Aikman came into the league. Mm -hmm. So what you have are players who can build their own brand. How many people out of 100 can name Patrick Mahomes? And if they can name him, can they say that he's a football player, maybe a quarterback, maybe that he won a Super Bowl? And then do they have positive feelings about him? So that gives you Q factor. And if you can create a high enough Q factor, then it's possible to, to brand uh, a player and then market him in a lot of ways. And you've got local, regional, and national markets. But um, we have uh, all forms of social media now. Uh, so whether it's TikTok or Snapchat, it's um, uh, athletes can create their own content. Mm. That is a big thing, right? Athletes creating their own content, starting podcasts, and going straight to fans and kind of creating a fan base uh, of their own, I think is a really interesting concept and something that we've really seen a lot of in, in recent years. And, and to me, that's particularly exciting. It seems to shrink the, the barrier between fan and athlete where you feel like you get a more, um, it's not a filtered view of them. You see a more authentic 
person across from you. You do, and we're innovating in technology. So for Patrick Mahomes, we created a um, virtual reality experience where you put on the headset, you're in the stadium, you're surrounded by big defensive linemen coming towards <laughs> you, there's crowd noise, and predicated on what you do with the football, you either throw a touchdown pass or, oh my God, you get sacked. And so it's, it's um, there are a lot of new ways to be involved. We just had the introduction of something called NFTs. Mm -hmm. So an NFT is a piece of art, a piece of uh, photography that's memorabilia, that's an iconic moment. And Mahomes went up on the, uh, on, on the internet with an NFT. And there's one group where you are one of 50, like an artwork, and others you can have unique original things. And he made $3.2 million for his charity in about 20 minutes. But this doesn't exist except on your computer or except on other manifestations. There's no physical memorabilia that you, you know, put up on your on your desk. So it's uh, it, it shows you how the computer and and business through it has taken on the uh, uh, the color of reality. Mm. That's a great way to put it. You know, I was an avid baseball card collector as a kid, you know, just as as any young sports fan is. And so the idea of everything being digital, it's it's strange to me. Is it yeah, does it strike I, you as strange well, at all? I know well, it's the future well, Tyler, and that's where I think things are that, going. That you can no longer uh, put the cards into the spokes of your bicycle <laughs> and uh, make the machine gun noise. You yeah. know, these are on the computer. Speaking of NFT and you know things being on the computer, you know more athletes are taking signing bonuses in cryptocurrency and things along those lines. What are your what are your thoughts about that trend? And and you know if an athlete comes to you and says, hey, this is something I'd like to explore, how do you begin to research and explore the the viability of that? So we've talked to cryptocurrency people, but it's a market with uh, viability it can go up rather than down, um, and so um, we're cautioning players to take it slow. Uh, but Bit, Bitcoin is here, mm -hmm. and um, I think there's only been one player so far that's asked to take a bonus in, in cryptocurrency, but I'm sure there'll be more. It's a, it's a very interesting trend to me and something I'm definitely going to continue to watch. Now, you do a lot of educating as well. On your website, you have uh, an education tab you know, dedicated to the different efforts that you take in terms of educating others in the business. Why is education such a big part of what you do? Because I wanted to mentor a new generation of prospective sports professionals with values and ethics who understood uh, specific skills. Mm -hmm. So you can go to law school, business school, or sports marketing and, uh, masters, and they teach you the principles of these areas, but they don't teach you a specific skill set how to negotiate, how to recruit, how to market, how to brand. And so we have two forms of education. One is an agent academy. And here we actually get the participants up in agent teams and they have to recruit an actual player. So they've had to recruit Ronald Jones. They had to recruit um, uh, Patrick Mahomes. Um, and 
Then they also have to do a mock negotiation. So half of them are general managers and half of them play uh, agents. And then they uh, have to do a branding marketing project. So we've taken this all across the country and, and trained a number of thousands of people. And then a sports career conference, which we've done locally in Dallas at SMU, where there's an hour panel on sports media. There's an hour panel on working for a team, a league, a front office, front office capacity, or a school or an athletic department. There's one hour on uh, charity and community and how to use uh, sports to do that. So um, we're trying to create a generation that are uh, get a jump start on their career. That's fantastic, fantastic stuff. We had a big um, announcement in the NFL last week as the first openly gay player um, to be active in the NFL came out, Carl Nassib. Uh, having been involved in the NFL for a long time, what do you think this means just for uh, the NFL to have an openly gay player there and, um, and to see maybe things and attitudes changing uh, about homosexual athletes in this country? Well, if it had been 25 years ago and I had ever met an athlete who, who uh, told me he was gay, I would have told them to to stay tightly closeted because mm -hmm. there was so much intolerance. But sparked by the younger generation, there's a totally um, uh, live and let live attitude towards certain conduct and certain realities. And this went over without much controversy at all. And I think the, the real question is in sports is, can this Carl Nassib um, sacked a quarterback. Can he give the team a better chance to win? And so uh, it's essentially pretty much a non-issue. It's which is uh, like you said, fantastic progress over where we were 25 years ago. Absolutely. So, given everything that you've accomplished in the game, 46 years of uh, of an incredible career, and you know, like I mentioned, uh, 11 Hall of Famers, eight number one overall draft picks. Well, we got 12 now. 12. Yes. 12. I've missed one. They're growing. <laughs> The list continues to grow. Who's the most recent addition? Um, let's see. Was it Edron James or John Lynch? Um, oh, I think it might be Lynch that I was missing when I was going down the list. So, um, so twelve now, which is uh, incredible. What keeps you motivated? What? Why continue to uh, to pour so much of yourself into this? So I was raised by a father who had two core values. Mm -hmm. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So there's many more issues to tackle, whether it's sex trafficking or bullying or domestic violence or racism or the environment. Um, and stimulating the best values in young people's lives and preparing them for second career is still fulfilling. So um, we have more work to do yet. And then I've got more books in me. So I've written a couple of New York Times bestsellers and I'm going to write more books. There'll be a documentary um, uh, and creating content has mm -hmm. been interesting for us trying to put together um, reality or other alternative sports programming. We're a rich source of content. What I really appreciate just uh, about having this conversation with you has been that a lot of people will say, oh, sports, it's just a game. But it's, it's bigger than that in our society and that it gives people platforms. And you seem determined to use your platform to create good in, in lots of other areas. And you're encouraging your athletes to do the same. And that, to me at least, um, makes sports bigger than just a game because it does afford people the opportunity to 
spread the, the values that you have and, and the good that you want to see in the world. Well, imagine that a sport like pro football is not only the most popular American sport, it's the most popular television show. Mm -hmm. So these visages and images are brought larger than life home to uh, in our front rooms and the athletes then become the movie stars of today. So we can use that power for good and to make change. Mm. You've been 11 years sober uh, this year, which congratulations, by the way. Tell me about um, that struggle and what you learned from, uh, from battling alcoholism. Well, basically, I went through a period in my life where my two kids were diagnosed with blindness. Um, my father died of cancer. Uh, we lost a couple of homes to mold, living in a beachside community. And it, um, I felt like Gulliver tethered on the beach, being stabbed by Lilliputians. Um, but what's key there is to break denial and have a sense of proportionality. <clears throat> I wasn't a starving peasant in Darfur. I didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany. I wasn't uh, afflicted by some disease. So what right did I not have to, to try and um, return to those basic core values? And so it's a sense of proportionality and then resilience. Um, life will throw you these punches, but the question is, can you come back? Can you be optimistic enough to visualize the light at the end of the tunnel? And I worked with a 12-step program and a unique fellowship, and, uh, and we're moving through year 12 now. Well, congratulations on that, and it's, uh, thank you for sharing about that. Um, you mentioned more books on the way, documentary and things like that. Where can people continue to look out for more from you? At uh, SteinbergSports.com or LeeSteinberg.com or on Twitter, at Lee Steinberg or on Facebook, all your usual outlets. <laughs> There you go, all the social medias and maybe a podcast at some point. Yes, day. I've done done one. I've done uh, hosted three talk radio shows. There we go. There we go. At least I'm very thank you. I'm not trying to steal your job. No. <laughs> yeah. Look, you can you can come for my job. I'm I'm sure that uh, that you could take it pretty easily, but uh, <laughs> I won't quit my day job. <laughs> Lee Steinberg, thank you so much for joining us here. My pleasure.